Welcome to the Dulas Youth Podcast. We hope this encourages and empowers you to be connected to God and one another. Thanks for joining us today. Enjoy the message. Well, hey, Dulas, it is good to be with you today. I hope that you guys are doing well. I don't know uh, how different your life looks in the last several months since we've been going through the coronavirus. I know one thing that's changed for me is um, I no longer go to a barber to get my haircut. Uh, my wife just buzzes my head now, and that's been a, been a cool thing. We don't even use the clippers. It's just a beard trimmer. So um, it is possible. I don't know uh, what, what uh, things that you guys have been up to, what you've been doing, but I am glad to be with you today. And as we get started today, uh, I just want to tell you about a person who spends eight hours a day preparing his mind and his uniform for duty. And every day that he is on the job, he gets a fresh haircut. Every single day. And when he's on duty, he won't change a single step for a single second. No matter the weather, no matter the hour of the day, no matter the day of the week, no matter how many people are watching him, or no matter if no one is watching him. Now, I'm pretty sure you've probably seen him before. He's a member of a special group of men and women in the United States Army who guard the tomb of the unknown soldier in Arlington National Cemetery. For every minute of every day, since July 2nd, 1937, the old guard has stood guard, and every single thing they do requires the utmost precision. When a soldier comes on duty, he walks exactly 21 steps across the tomb, which represents the 21-gun salute. And when he turns, he faces the tomb, and he remains in that position for 21 seconds. He turns again and he walks 21 steps across the tomb. And when he completes this short walk, he stops. He turns to the tomb and he pauses for 21 seconds. And over and over and over again, the soldier repeats this process until his shift is completed. And when the job is done well, it seems like the soldier's head and weapon don't move at all. Now, the average age of this soldier is only 22. And they will prepare for weeks for the opportunity to take their turn. One of the most unique aspects about this ceremony is the shoes that the soldiers wear. Now, they're, they're standard military-issued boots, but they're built up a little bit in the soles and the heels to help them with the walking and the turning, and especially that, that distinctive sound it makes when they, when they click their heels. Their strict training ensures that the guard will be unflinching and unwavering in their duty. No matter the, the scorching heat of the summer, no matter the driving rains of November, no matter the frozen snow of February. And most importantly of all, the guard will remain posted. Their steps will remain perfect, even when it's midnight. Even when there's not a single person watching them. Now, let me tell you something about the members of the U.S. Army who stand guard at the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier. If you want to join this special group, you have to learn to walk in a different way. To walk in the same way as everyone else in Arlington National Cemetery is to give up the privilege of walking with the old guard. To miss a single step when it's your turn to guard the tomb is to, is to miss an opportunity to stand with those who have stood before you. To misunderstand the, the motivation behind your duty is to miss the point completely. And, and, and here is the point. Inside the tomb of the unknown soldiers at Arlington National Cemetery is men who gave up their lives for the freedoms that we know. And surrounding the, the tomb 
are, are more than 250,000 other graves of, of men and women who have given their lives serving our country, and it reminds us that our freedom isn't free at all. It was paid with a price, and, and that kind of sacrifice requires a guard 24 hours a day. It's, it's worth somebody standing there seven days a week, 12 months out of the year. And so, and so what I'm trying to say in all of that is this. You walk differently when it's your turn to guard the tomb. And you walk differently when you begin to follow Jesus. We're living in a messed up world right now. Everything in our world is, is, is in chaos. That there's division, that there's hatred, that there's fear. Our world is hurting, and if, if things are going to get better, then we can't just keep doing the same things we've always been doing. It's going to take you and me committing ourselves to live, to walk in a different way. Very simply, the message of the Bible is we are expected to walk in a different way once we begin to follow Jesus. It doesn't matter if people are watching us or not. It doesn't matter if the walk is easy or difficult. It doesn't matter the circumstances. It doesn't matter the physical, the emotional, or the spiritual strain we may experience. Walking as a follower of Jesus requires a different step than the rest of the world. And sometimes I'm afraid it requires just as much work as if we were soldiers at the tomb of the unknown soldier. We can't just walk differently when we show up to church on Sundays. Walking differently must become a new way of life. We're, we're in a series going through the book of Ephesians. Paul writes this letter to the church in Ephesus, and what he's writing is incredibly relevant, despite the fact that these words were written almost 2,000 years ago. Ephesus was a huge city. It was a major transportation hub, and, and their culture, surprisingly, has many similarities to our culture today. Though their technology was different, their struggles were the same. They had a tendency to engage in sinful behavior. They were materialistic to the point of overkill. They, they had these sexual practices that left nothing to the imagination, that they seemed to have no shame at all. And yet, right in the middle of a very difficult environment, a church is born. And as Paul ministered to this small group of Christians, it became obvious that these people were hungry for something real. They wanted something more than, than what money could buy. They, they wanted more than, than what their lustful imaginations could create. And as they listened, and as they considered the life of Jesus, and as they changed their ways their number began to grow. In fact, so many people in Ephesus came to know Christ that, that it challenged the economic core of the city. The change so dramatic came to town that there was a riot of over 25,000 people with Paul himself being the very focus of their outrage. And eventually Paul has to flee the city in order to save his life. And, and a while after that, he, he writes a letter to this church with a simple instruction of what he expected of them. He urged them to, to a new way of living. Or as the guards at the tomb in Arlington might say, a new way of walking. So, so let's read together Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. This is what Paul writes. I therefore, 
a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. You'll notice that this passage begins with the word therefore. And this word is very important because it marks a new transition in the book of Ephesians. Uh, chapters 1 through 3 are part 1. Chapters 4 through 6 are, are, are part 2. And, and the first three chapters are all about what it, what it means to know King Jesus. And the second three chapters are all about what it means to live that out. Chapters 1 through 3 are all about this is, this is who you are. Chapters 4 through 6 is now this is how you should live. Now, when you turn 18, one of the things that, that you get to look forward to is you have the opportunity to be selected for jury duty, okay? I don't know if this is something that, that excites you or something that uh, you, you think is going to be completely worthless and boring, but I've been called to jury duty a couple of times in my life. And, and it's a summons, it's an invitation to participate in the judicial process of your country. Now, this invitation or this calling, um, it's not really an invitation that, that, that gives you the option to decline. If you're called, you show up. And that's kind of the same concept that Paul is using here when he talks to the church in Ephesus and, and he tells them to, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling they've received. It's an invitation to participate in the Christian lifestyle, but, but it's, not an, it's not an invitation that gives you an opportunity to turn it down. Because God expects us to walk. He expects us to live in a Christ-honoring way, the same way that a judge expects you to show up when you're invited to court. But before we consider how we're supposed to live, we need to remember a foundational point that Paul has stressed earlier and over and over again in the book of Ephesians, and it's this. The way you walk has nothing to do with the way you were saved. The way you walk has nothing to do with the way you were saved. We see this earlier in the book of Ephesians, in Ephesians 2, verses 8 through 10. It says, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Throughout his letters, Paul consistently reminds us that we are saved by grace and no other way. See, you, you can't avoid enough sins. You can't serve at enough homeless shelters. You can't sing enough worship songs or read enough Bible or give enough money in order to be saved. You just can't. You can't walk in a way that honors God and hope that that's going to be enough for you just to walk yourself into heaven. See, if you haven't accepted the gift of grace... There is no grace. So I want you right now to think for a minute of one of the greatest gifts you've ever received in your life. Maybe think back to a birthday or a Christmas. I know for me, that the greatest gift that, that I've ever received when, when I was in sixth grade at Christmas, my parents surprised me with a little golden retriever puppy, okay? And to this day, all these years later, that's the greatest Christmas gift I've ever received. 
Now, if you were to ask my wife what the greatest gift she's ever received, I don't know exactly what she would say, but over Christmas break when we were in college, I got down on one knee and I proposed to her and, and I gave her an engagement ring. I'm hoping she would say that that's the gift, best gift she's received. But, but what is it for you? It might be a, you know, a, a video game console, a new pair of shoes. Maybe you got a, a car when you turn 16. I, I don't know what, what it is for, for you, but here's the deal. If you received it as a gift, that means it was free. It didn't cost you a dime. You didn't have to pay taxes on it. You didn't have to wait in line in an overcrowded store in order to purchase it. You didn't have to pay for shipping. You didn't even have to wrap it. Your one and only goal in the transaction was receiving and accepting that gift. That's it. But there was nothing more that you had to do in the transaction process. And listen, you don't need some theological treatise to understand the concept of receiving a Christmas gift. It's easy, it's common, it's wonderful. And honestly, that's the point. Re receiving the gift of salvation, receiving the ultimate gift is easy. It's wonderful. It's even common. Millions and millions of people believe that Jesus Christ was the Messiah, the Savior. But, but there is as big a step between receiving Christ and living a life that's worthy of that gift as there is in, in receiving an iPhone and, and, and figuring out how to work the thing, okay? A, a person who takes the time to really figure out how, how a smartphone works and everything it can do is completely different than someone who only uses it to make calls, who only uses it to, to, to call someone on the phone. Say, so how different? Well, it's like the, the people who really figured out how, how the computer worked, they're the ones who made the most money off of it. You think, and they're some of the richest people in America right now. The, the, the people who really figured out this whole internet thing, they're the ones who, who made the most profit off of it. Like, like you look at the, at the top companies in the world today, they're the ones who realized the potential and the power of the internet. And the companies that no longer exist, the companies that are failing, I think of a company right now like JCPenney who just filed for bankruptcy. Like you, you think of them compared to companies like Amazon and Walmart and Target who are just killing it because they figured out the power and potential of online sales. And Paul discovered, after he was saved by grace, that through his faith in Christ, he was now better able to control his thoughts. He was better able to control his lust and his anxiety and his anger. He was better able to control these feelings of guilt. He didn't find this prison of things that he couldn't do because he had accepted Christ. No, he actually found a freedom in knowing Christ. A freedom that allowed him to sing while he was in prison. And because he knew what would happen, he urges us, live a life worthy of the calling you've received. Tap in to what's made available to you. So I want to make sure we, we get it clear right from the start that there's a huge difference between receiving the gift of salvation and then using and living out that relationship. There's a huge difference. And your actions in life, they have nothing to do with how you were saved. 
Salvation is by grace alone. Grace that's made available only through the death of Jesus Christ. And so as Paul writes this letter, he's writing to Christians. He's writing to believers. And he says, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. These are people who've already received the gift. And if you've never received the gift, and you try to plug in these principles into play, I'm telling you, it just won't work. You might feel better for a little while. You might even get some positive results, like a New Year's resolution that you make, but it won't last. So let me just ask the question. Have you ever received the gift? If not, I'm telling you this morning, you will never live your life to the fullest. The best decision you can ever make in life is to accept the grace of Jesus Christ and make him the Lord and Savior of your life. So first of all, the way you walk has nothing to do with how you were saved. But secondly, the way you walk is seen in how you treat others. The way you walk is seen in how you treat others. We see this in these first three verses of Ephesians 4. Paul says, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Do you notice those qualities that Paul lists there immediately following his instruction to walk in a way that's worthy of your calling? We see humility, we see gentleness, we, we see patience, we see bearing with one another, we see loving people. We, we see working to keep the unity among believers. It's pretty simple. When you make an effort to live in a Christ-honoring manner, it immediately affects all the people around you. You think of when Jesus was in the upper room and, and he took on the nature of a servant and he washed his disciples' feet. It was such a countercultural moment. It shocks people. And when you live with gentleness and you live with humility, people will be stunned at what they see in you. You want to know what this looks like lived out? It's like this. The people around you go first. Other people get the best portion. The people you live with, the people you work with, the people you study with, the people you hang out with, they get more than you do. They get more honor. They get more prestige. They get more joy. They might even have more stuff or more money. But, but it's a lifestyle that says you will be the servant and they will be the served. You say, well, why does that happen? Because you make sure it happens that way. And can I tell you what's really fun? Can I tell you what's really exciting? Is when you fill a house full of people who have all made the decision to live a life worthy of the calling they've received. It's incredible. Because in a marriage relationship, you've got a husband and wife who are trying to outgive each other. And both of them can't believe how wonderful it is and how good it is to be in that marriage. And then you've got siblings. You've got brothers and sisters who try to take care of one another. It's overwhelming. I mean, this is the stuff that your favorite movies are made of. Where you've got the big brother who's standing up for the little brother. And you've got the little sister who brags to all her friends about her big sister. And you've got these, these brothers and sisters, you have these siblings who can't think of anything better to do than to spend time with one another. And, and they, they have this, this genuine admiration 
for, for the good grades that their sibling gets, or their sports talent, or their musical skill, or the way that they interact and, and the way they are around people. And it's this wonderful thing. And when a church is filled with servants, when a youth group is filled with servants, miracles happen. The passage that you guys looked at last week, just a few verses earlier in Ephesians 3, 20 and 21, says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Now the only way that ever happens is through what's best called spiritual maturity. Now listen, a junior high student or a high school student can be spiritually mature. And a 65-year-old can be a spiritual child. A 65-year-old can still be horribly immature when it comes to caring more about others than themselves. Because qualities like patience, they don't come easily. Bearing with one another, it sometimes takes a whole lot of effort. And only the most committed pull it off. Uh, Leonard Bernstein was a famous uh, orchestra conductor, and a fan after a concert once came up to him, and he asked him, he said, Mr. Bernstein, what's the hardest instrument to play? And without even hesitating, Mr. Bernstein said, second fiddle. He said, I can always get plenty of first violinists, but to find one who plays second violin with as much enthusiasm, now that's a problem. And yet if no one plays second, we have no harmony. And the way our church has the harmony that it has, the way our youth ministry has the harmony that it has is because so many people are willing to play second fiddle. It's truly amazing because we have people who are willing to say, I'm willing to lay down my personal preferences because I want unity. Unity is so much more important than what I want. And so the way you walk is seen in how you treat others. Thirdly, I want you to see that the way you walk is up to you. You know, the Bible is making a challenge today. But no one alive knows the results of this challenge. The way you walk, the choice of how you live, it's completely up to you. The circumstances that surround you, no matter how good or how bad, they can't control how you react to those circumstances. And that's what we're focusing on. The choices we make, that's how we choose to live. That's how we walk. Now, my youngest son, Jude, is four years old. And I am telling you, he is strong-willed and he is downright defiant. And I can find myself so often getting frustrated when I'll ask him to do anything and he'll just look at me and do the exact opposite. And so what I've learned as a parent that I have to do is I have to give him choices. And I can say, all right, Jude, here's the deal. You can either brush your teeth or you can not play video games tomorrow. The choice is up to you, right? Like, like, and as ridiculous as these choices are, I found that he responds so much better when he feels like he has the ability to make a choice. And I'm telling you, the ultimate choice is when a person makes the choice to walk in a way that honors Christ. Because not only does it impact their life, but it impacts others. And you know what? The only person in the world who can make that decision for you is you. you. Say, is it hard? Is it difficult? Ten years ago this month, 
LeBron James made what we know today as the decision. There was a camera crew, it was on TV. He sat down across from reporter Jim Gray at a boys and girls club. He had just entered free agency and he said, I'm taking my talents to South Beach. He, he was leaving the Cleveland Cavaliers to go play for the Miami Heat. And it was this huge decision, this major decision. He talked about how it, it, it weighed on his mind and, and he thought over and over about the pros and cons and, and all this. And, and he finally said, this is the decision that I'm going to make. And I think so often when it comes to, to make a decision to, to follow Christ, we think, we think it's this, this huge one-time major decision. But walking in a way worthy of your calling isn't as much a, a major decision as it is a long series, a lifetime of minor decisions. Because you make them one at a time. It's like one little step in front of the other. And what you find is, is day after day, step after step of making this, this, these decisions, you find yourself walking in a completely new way of life. So maybe today you're, you're thinking, so what? Like, what's it really matter? What's it really matter how I walk? Here's why. Because worthy living promotes wonderful unity. Worthy living promotes wonderful unity. And this unity that we've spent so much time talking about in our culture and in the church over the past several months, this unity that, that is so needed, what we need to realize is this unity is not something that we create, but we keep. It's not something that we manufacture, but we maintain. God has already created the unity. It is our job as believers to come together and keep it. And when a divided world sees a united church, Jesus gets the glory. And people begin to see something that they long for, something they know that they need, but they haven't experienced. And you know what? They see it in you and they see it in me. Peter said it this way in 1 Peter 2.12, Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds. And you know what happens when they see your good deeds? They will glorify God on the day that he visits us. Listen, guys, you have been called by God. Think about that. You have been called by God. This is the same God who created the world. The, the same God who created you, the same God who loved you and cared for you so much that he sent his son Jesus to die on a horrible cross and die a horrible death to pay the penalty for your sins. The same God who sent his Holy Spirit to live inside of you to guide you. That same God who, who, is, who is creating an eternity for you right now. He's preparing a place for you right now. That same God has called you to walk differently. And if you're a follower of Jesus, it's not really an option. And so like Paul, today, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. Thanks for joining us today. If you've enjoyed the podcast, you can subscribe, share it with your friends, even take a screenshot and share it to your social stories and tag us at Dulas Youth. Thanks again for listening. We'll see you soon.